Thank you very much, Malama. Karen Hay in for Wallace Chapman all this week. And with us on the panel today, we have on Zoom Zoe George, Senior Sports Journalist at Stuff. And in the Auckland studio, senior writer at the New Zealand Herald, Simon Wilson. A couple of seniors. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> text me on 2101. And thank you for your texts uh, regarding Simon's comments on climate change. Hi, Karen. Uh, delay is the new denial. And say goodbye to your ice cream if the current government has their way with New Zealand producing less than 1% of global emissions. Animal taxes, less dairy is too polluting. Sad days. Well, <laughs> what can you say about that? The government isn't stopping dairy. Um, and as Zoe said earlier, there are other ways in time that we will look to other ways to make ice cream. Duck Island, she mentioned, is coconut ice cream. Yes. And Debbie says that your opinion, Simon, is only your opinion and not authoritative. Well, that's true. <laughs> on, on the subject I can of be authoritative about that. <laughs> on the subject of ice cream, one of the best ice cream flavours I've had is green tea. Jeff said uh, mm-hmm. he tasted it while he was in Japan. Bryce says the much more bacon, bourbon, and maple syrup ice cream flavour special was great a few years back. And on Lotto, we're going to be speaking about Lotto in this hour. My father-in-law was spending $500 a week on Lotto, sent him broke. I guess it's the thrill of winning big that unfortunately didn't come for him. It's an addiction that I believe has lots of Kiwis hooked. We'll be discussing that. And the weather, hi, it's certainly snowing, sleeting and hailing on and off at Port Chalmers. I think Coco the dog is getting, I don't think Coco the dog is getting a walk this Arvo. I'll go on, raincoat for you, and mind you, it's hard going out with a dog when, when it's cold, isn't it, <laughs> raining. Has, has Coco got a little coat? Can't answer that. Uh, can't answer that. I don't have a dog. I'm really sorry. I cannot tell you. It's 10 minutes past four, RNZ National, the panel, and the death of a Kiwi soldier in Ukraine has sparked debate on whether there needs to be a law change to deter more New Zealanders going to fight overseas. The body of New Zealand Corporal Dominic Abelin is yet to be retrieved after he was killed by Russians in the east of Ukraine. Attempts to do so were reportedly abandoned after soldiers came under heavy fire. With us on the line is international law expert at Waikato University, Professor Al Gillespie. Kia ora. Good afternoon, Al. Kia ora, Karen. What legal rights or protections do, do New Zealand soldiers have if they choose to fight in Ukraine? None, none whatsoever. It's a combat zone they're not meant to be in, and if they're captured, they may be deemed to be a mercenary. They certainly won't have prisoner of war status, and if they fall, it's very unlikely that their body would be repatriated. And this may happen in this case? I think it's likely in this case, especially if the Russians already have possession of the body. Uh, You talked about uh, the Russians being honourable, but it's unlikely, you think? No, what I was saying is that this is one of the oldest rules of warfare, whereby you would make a division between effectively people who were what we call civilised and those who were barbarians. It's a Greek tradition, and those who were civilised would allow the bodies to to be returned to the families where they'd fallen. I realise, Al, that, that soldiers are trained to fight, obviously, but what do you think motivates these people to go over there? I think ethically it makes good sense for a lot of people to go there because it's an illegal war. It's been done conducted in a way which is often inhumane, and so the justifications are quite strong to go. The problem is that even though it makes sense ethically, politically, it can cause difficulties because more people get pulled into the conflict and legally those people have no rights. And you make the point that while we're not party to the actual conflict, New Zealand's not neutral in the current war. We are involved. 
we're deeply involved. We're, we're, we're training Ukrainian soldiers. We're providing weapons. We're providing assistance for new weapon systems. But that is containable, and the conflict will not spread. But if New Zealand boots or any NATO boots end up on the ground of the Ukraine, it could quickly escalate into something very different. Simon, uh, should a member of the New Zealand Defence Force be allowed to fight with foreign troops? Um, I think Al's right that there is a strong ethical case for people to support the people of Ukraine in the ways that they can best. And if you're a trained soldier, then obviously there's a uh, there's a way in which you might want to do that. But I also think Al's right that we shouldn't um, seek to put them on a particular pedestal. That It is a mercenary activity. It's simply being a mercenary activity on what you might say is the right side. Um, so I'm not sure that we have a strong case to argue that they, they need special treatment in any way. And, Aldi, should the government be turning a, a blind eye or are there measures that they could take to prevent New Zealanders fighting in Ukraine? Well, some countries have uh, laws which say that you can't enlist in foreign armies. And so you could go down that route. I mean, the, the one rule is, is that no one in the New Zealand military must be anywhere near that conflict in the Ukraine. The bigger question is of volunteers who aren't military who want to go over. It's a difficult line. The last time we really looked at this was with the Spanish Civil War. And even though other countries had laws, New Zealand tended to turn a blind eye so that volunteers could go. And so just uh, coming to you, former Defence Minister Ron Mark, uh, he spoke this morning wanting an embassy in Ukraine. Do you think that would do anything? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> it's You know, I think it's a really good question and... Um, eh. Yeah, I mean, for me, I've been thinking about why soldiers from New Zealand would want to go over there, and, and I agree with that whole ethical standpoint. Um, you know, this type of thing is quite personal to me. My brother is in the army. He served a tour in Iraq uh, along with the young man who died in the Ukraine. Um, and some of the statistics that are coming out from our soldiers, there was a recent survey released, um, I think it was earlier in August, that said 30% of our soldiers have been unhappy with their pay, about the same amount are considering leaving. So what are we doing to try and help our soldiers remain in New Zealand, make sure that they're trained, they're well looked after, um, so that they feel that they want to stay here and you know, help us help home. Um, I absolutely appreciate that um, helping the Ukraine is incredibly important, but I also am mindful of the working conditions and, and the soldiers here in New Zealand. And 30%, that's quite a huge number of people who are unhappy and who are considering leaving um, or are not happy with their wages. So that's where, when I think about this, that's where I go back to. So I think about my brother and his, um, the soldiers that fought alongside him in Iraq and that still work with him and are still involved in the army. And so for me, my, I'm thinking about them. Uh, but uh, as I was saying before, they, soldiers are trained to fight. That's one of the reasons mm. that they want to go to uh, see action. <laughs> you, oh, you know, absolutely. And for the last couple of years, they haven't been deployed. You know, we've now got a group that's gone to the UK to help train uh, a bunch of Ukrainian uh, military. But, you know, our team, the, the army, they got deployed to look after our MIQ spots. And, um, you know, not that had all sorts for. of... <laughs> yeah, yeah, not what they signed up for. And that had a whole bunch of implications as well. So part of me is not surprised that a whole bunch of them want to leave. Um, and maybe going to a front line in Ukraine fills that void or fills that hole. But, um, yeah, it's, it's incredibly, you know, when my brother went to Iraq, I was so proud of him, but it was also incredibly difficult knowing that he was going into that war zone um, and, and what he could possibly face. And some of the stories that I've heard are horrific.
thing is, so that we, we don't have a lot of evidence that there are lots of New Zealand soldiers wanting to do this, do we? I mean, we know there are some. We know there are more than just one or two, but we don't know quite how many. And that 30% of of the army who are mm. uh, people who are disgruntled or disillusioned. I wonder if that's a higher proportion than any industry in the country or in the world right now. We're all we're all annoyed and upset and and, <laughs> and discombobulated, aren't we? You know, yeah. the, the things are not working well, and we all mm. feel that. And Al, just in terms of those who are offshore, let's say in Ukraine for humanitarian reasons, where do they stand in this in a legal aspect? They're in a somewhat difficult position. I mean, this is where I think if we had more diplomatic outreach into Ukraine, it would make sense. So I would support it for humanitarian assistance. I would not support it if it meant funneling people into the military. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Al. Uh, that's Professor Al Gillespie. It's 16 minutes past four, RNZ National, and we've long heard that there is a truancy crisis in schools, but absent students may have to wait two months before they receive help to get back into the classroom, and that's according to Brendan Crompton from Attendance Service Blue Light, and he's with us now on the line. Kia ora, welcome, Brendan. Kia ora, thanks, Karen. Why is there such a long wait? Uh, well, the, um, it's really based around the resourcing of um, youth workers in our area, which so we work with the most chronic truants, so our kids are not just truant, they've been away from school for so long, they're actually what they call non-enrolled. So the school is actually obligated to non-enrol them after 20 consecutive days off school, and normally that doesn't just happen, it's normally because they've been you know, truant over a long period of time. Um, the attendance service hasn't been able to reconnect them back into school, and then they uh, then after so many weeks they get non-enrolled because the school funding is in resourcing is based on roll numbers. So that the schools are obligated through their role to not enrol those children. Well, how stretched is your service? Because that seems to be the major problem here. Uh, well, I, th- I think uh, historically the service, both the attendance service and the non-enrol service, has been has been um, largely underfunded. Um, we're trying to advocate um, to the Ministry of Education for more funding, and there was some more funding put in recently by government. Um, that hasn't got to us yet, but uh, we're working with the Ministry of Education to get more funding for more. Um, uh, good quality youth workers who can work with the young people in their farm and get them re-engaged. We have all of counties Manukau, so from um, essentially uh, Port Waikato through to Onehunga, so very large area geographically, and at current time we're about 1,800 active young people in our books, um, 3,000 over the last 12 months, but 1,800 actively non-enrolled in school, and they range from 6 to 15 years of age. Uh, obviously, the reasons why they're not going to school are multifaceted, um, yes. and I believe ranging from um, things like serious anxiety to a requirement to bring in money for the for the family, not the six year old. I hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no. yeah. You know, you're right. There's, um, there's, there's a, it's, it's very complex. There's a number of families who themselves uh, have have obviously a history of, of failing through education, so they don't value education, so they don't see much point in their kids going to school. So there's, a, there's a real battle with those people. A lot of social media bullying. Um, there was obviously the COVID hangover, but we don't get that excuse much anymore. Family violence, um, transitional and emergency housing. A lot of our young people in the whānau live in one area of, of South Auckland and then they're moved uh, many suburbs away and the kids don't want to go to a new school. They want to go back to their old school, but they're not living in that suburb anymore. Um, you know, drug and alcohol addiction. It's really you know, every every family we work with. It's case by case. There's no one size fits all. I, I use the word crisis, and that would pretty much encapsulate it, wouldn't it? 
Well, I mean, I, I had a bit of a you know, talk to a couple of people last week, and it was it's interesting that the government's got a road to zero on on road crashes, and they've just um, lowered the, their their the, the thought around seventy you know, percent of kids to go to school ninety percent of the time. So, you surely you would think a hundred percent of kids should go to school a hundred percent of the time would be the would be the be the vision. Yep, seventy percent of the kids to go to school ninety percent of the time. That's the aim. Yeah. That's that, terribly that, low. That, that's the new vision. So, in, in your view, what needs to happen? Um, well, I mean, we, we're 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 at the hard end. We, we it's but like we also do work with um, young people who have offended. Um, money needs to be put in way earlier into very early in, in, in primary school. You know, I'd like to think our service didn't exist because kids are, are engaged in school, but often by the time they get to us, you know, you've, they've had months and months and months and months of not being in school, and so it's way harder to re-engage them. Um, the money, you know, really needs to go into that intervention at primary school level when, when, for a number of reasons, kids stop going to school and then it becomes a pattern of behaviour for the rest of their school, school days. Um, all of our young people who, who come to us who have offended, they all have a history of non-engagement in school, 100% of them. So it shows some of the um, problems that happen later in life if kids aren't engaged in school. So catch them early. If it happens they're away for a week, that's when you need to be stepping yeah. in. Absolutely. And how would you deal with that, though? I mean, what what can you realistically do? Well, a lot of the families, there's like I talked about, the emerging housing. Some families, it's quite easy to get the kids back to school. They just need some help getting uniforms, um, getting re-enrolled, you know, going up to the school office for some parents is, 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 has a lot of anxiety because they may not be too well. You know, sometimes the office lady or the office man in the, isn't the most welcoming. So there's kind of those little systems change you could make to make the process of re-enrolling a lot simpler and more pleasant experience. I understand. Uh, Zoe, can I ask you, if you were Chris Hipkins, the Minister of Education, how would you handle this? Oh, 70% at 90% of the time is just not acceptable. You know, education is fundamental on on so many levels. Um, Brendan, in the story in which we were talking about here, it said that there have been new pilot programs with these services working with schools. Do you know how they're going and, and whether they've been sort of successful in trying to close this gap? Yeah, so the, the the part of the process that we're in is where they've split up day-to-day truancy and the non-enrolled, So the, the, and that's been given back to schools, and they manage the attendance offices in clusters. Um, and, and the work I've done alongside them, it seems to be much more successful. The schools are in charge of, more in charge of their own destiny. Um, so the anecdotal evidence from talking to principals is it is working better. And well, that's good you? to hear. Simon, there's obviously not much education, education, education if they're not in school. Oh, I think that's right. You know, I had, um, I think this is a massively uh, difficult, serious problem for us. Um, I had uh, Tar Mark Solomon, uh, who's the chief executive of, of Kaitahu, talking in the Writers' Festival, Auckland Writers' Festival, uh, last weekend. And he said that by 2050, most Pākehā in this country will be retired. And most of the people in the workforce will be non-white and an enormous proportion of them, if we continue as we are now, will be basically undereducated and therefore working in low-wage jobs or not working at all. And that is not a recipe for a sustainable first world economy or a functional society. It simply is not going to happen. And it's only a generation away from where we are now. It's a really big, serious problem. And in Auckland, I know one of the difficult things about it is that when people talk about schools and and get obsessed about schools, 
very quickly the, de- the, the debate turns to, is it better to go to send your kids to grammar or kings? It's an utterly irrelevant argument. The real argument, the real discussion is how do we as a whole society uh, help with this problem that is all of ours, and that is how do we give the resources and the support that's needed comprehensively uh, into the poorer parts of the city. Well, I have to say that wasn't a discussion in our household. It wasn't an option. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it gets it just gets it just gets clobbered, you know, by that. And I, when I went at Metro and we did best schools issue, that's what everybody wanted to know. And it was just absurd. And you'd want to that's see what people this, who had the resources wanted to yeah, know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and that's the dot, yes. you know hogging the conversation. And you'd spend so much time talking about the low decile schools that were doing really well. But that was it. Thank you very much, Brendan. My pleasure. It's Brendan Crompton from Attendance Service Blue Light. It's 24 minutes past four, and sartorial sins, supposedly now. Uh, the comments section and stuff is full of the phrase gene shaming in relation to this next story, which is headlined, Six Denim Blunders That Men Make and Women Hate. Uh, there's also a smattering of accusations of gender shaming. But all shame aside, what are the six denim blunders that men make and women hate? According to the author, Kate Spicer, she's a lifestyle journalist out of the UK. She writes for the Sunday Times and the Daily Mail and others. These six blunders are too skinny. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you are a great-grandfather and in the Rolling Stones, skinny jeans have no place in your life. We're all great-grandfathers in the Rolling Stones, though, you know. (laughs) No, we're not. In our heads. (laughs) uh, Right. Too cheap. Your jeans are too cheap. (laughs) Too distressed. Mm. Too rumpled. Too tight and too high-waisted. You're looking at me as if you want me to fess up at some point and go, oh, my, oh my God, that's me. No, I'm no. not going to do it, you know. <laughs> no, I was just going to look under the desk and see what ah, you were wearing, actually. Not jeans well, at all, as it happens. Oh, no, you're wearing similar pants to me. I, in fact, it looks like the same fabric, your jacket and my pants. Yeah. True, not we'll jeans. we notes later. <laughs> and too high-waisted, a jean that's hooked high on a man's waist is probably one of the most unsexiest sights you'll ever see. Zoe? What do you think? Uh, see, now, I... Uh, I'm yeah, ready to pass here. <laughs> no, I, I love fashion. It's one of my favourite things outside of sport and ice cream. Um, and for me, you should feel amazing in the clothes that you wear. Yeah. So if skinny jeans are your jam, yeah. uh, then wear skinny jeans. And as a bit of a... You know, bogan, which I am. I mean, I lived in Palmerston North, for goodness sake. So, of course, I'm a bogan. Um, you know, black skinnies, docks, or and a really cool leather jacket and a band t shirt. You know, they're the kind of guys that I dated for quite some time. And I love that look. I still love that look. I so, don't think yeah, for Karen's me. completely yeah. unfamiliar with the type of. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah but, um, the, but the, the, the biggest crime. How old to be wearing these yeah, things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Older any the age. Better? The biggest crime, though, the biggest crime. The biggest crime with jeans on men, I have to say, is still having your little um, cell phone clipped to the side of your uh-huh. jeans. Do you see that? Yep, Do you that's really the, see that? Oh, yes, I still see that. That's, that's the only men, thing right? I avoid. Your oh, cell phone I, clipped to your jeans. <laughs> yeah, I, I no, don't think I've, I've never seen that, Jam. I have two completely contradictory things I want to say about this, and the first is the one that I officially completely believe, which is that nobody should be shamed for the clothes they wear. Right. Mm. Um, and the other one is... Oh, my God. 
by way um, of some of these things? Um, no, I don't. No. I, I like to think I don't. I like to think I don't. Um, okay, describe but, you your know, jeans it, then. What jeans have you got I, in the drawer? Okay, I don't have jig- None. jiggings. I, I do have jeans, yes, but, yes. and they're, they're skinny jeans, yeah. I like wearing like skinny, jeans. skinny jeans. I do like wearing skinny jeans. Why do you like but wearing not, skinny jeans? But they're not, they're not jeans? you know, clinging to my calves skinny. They're just pretty skinny. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, why, they look good on you, do I, they? I'd like to say so, you know, but can you do that on national radio and I hope not to be ridiculed forever and a day afterwards? It's all right. No one can see you. It's yeah, fine. They, they will. They will. They will. Right. I'm going to add to that list, too skinny, too cheap, too distressed, too rumpled, too tight, and too high-waisted. I'm going to add to that, too blue. Too blue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely think black jeans all the black, way, really. Yeah, black, my, yeah, at yeah, the yeah, moment, yeah. I realized yeah. the other day all my jeans are black, and I used to I, I think, do I need to buy a pair of blue jeans? And there's I an, probably do, that but not bright too blue. blue? Thank, thank you for the I don't like that bright blue, no. but it's very modern. There you go. Not mm. bright blue. No. So do you think Kate Spice's got any good points here, uh, Zoe? Eh. Nah. I don't know. I don't know. She can do what she wants. One of the other things she said was that she named the big brands and said you should stick to these. And I thought, that's just complete nonsense, you know? Wear the mm. clothes that you like being in and... You don't have to buy big name brands in order to be wearing the right clothes. Especially with denim. Absolutely. It's much of a muchness, isn't yeah. it? And uh, there's a whole bunch of amazing <laughs> denim designers uh, here in New Zealand who do amazing, uh, amazing jeans. So I would absolutely recommend looking for, I mean, that's something that I wear a lot of. I wear heaps of New Zealand designers. Um, and they're good quality. They last a long time. And this is it, right? If you're buying a pair of jeans, actually any type of clothes, fast fashion is bad and wrong. And so buy stuff that's going to last you until you wear it out. I think that's right. And here's a little tip. Way back in the day when I went to Consumer Magazine, we knew that people tried on 14 pairs of jeans on average before they bought a pair. Knowing that, be confident to Mm. actually use the the dressing rooms at the shop. Shop around. Yeah, you is you the know. fault in the jeans or the content of the jeans? <laughs> oh, yeah, this is true. Um, and you can get jeans custom made as well. Um, there's an amazing Ooh. jeans designer here in Wellington called Duncan McLean who does incredible stuff, and my partner wears his jeans, and I quite like my partner's jeans. So I'm down for custom making so that they, if you've got enough money, that fit your body, and you know, and then they're going to last for ages. So, yeah. Thank absolutely. you. Thank you. We've got lots of ticks on this. I'll come back to them after the news with Malama.